Welcome to Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Doug Glanville. Doug, longtime colleague at ESPN and a fascinating guy. Nine-year veteran in the big leagues. Goes on to work at ESPN. Writes for the New York Times. Writes for the Atlantic. Just so incredibly qualified in so many different ways. Uh, such a smart and interesting person. And uh, I've always enjoyed chatting with Doug. Really good perspective. We've talked about this business, this crazy business, which can, uh, you know, beat you down, lift you up, do all kinds of things. And his path in that realm. And we also talked, of course, about his path in baseball. I'm, I'm a sucker for any of this. Whenever I get any baseball player on, I want to know what was it like. Did you think you, when you were a kid that you could be a big leaguer? When you found out that you were a big leaguer, how did you feel about that? I had Ryan Spielborgs on not too long ago. Uh, great dude, does Rockies games here in Denver. And, uh, you know, lots of deep dives there. And then kind of went on to it uh, with Doug and just a lot of perspective. It was it was really, really good. And he fights for causes that he really believes in. Um, was once stopped by a police officer for shoveling his own driveway uh, in Hartford. Yeah. So that other stuff and just uh, the stuff that he's doing to try to affect change is pretty interesting. He's teaching a, a fascinating class which kind of deals with the intersection of sports and identity and, and all kinds of different interesting concepts that are melded together. Uh, really, really smart and a really interesting and introspective guy. So I think you'll enjoy this a lot. A little bit of everything, fun and laughter, and also some serious stuff and uh, some causes that uh, uh, always have a place on this show. Let's say that. Let us discuss one of today's sponsors, friends, and that is ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is a great way to recruit people to work at your place of business. They post your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter actively looks for the most qualified candidates and invites them to apply. They review every application to identify the top candidates so you never miss a great match. And that's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, it is the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. And one more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. Thanks to ZipRecruiter for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, briefly touch on a bunch of stuff. A, a few of you have uh, reached out via email and whatnot to ask, uh, hey, what's going on? You got content planned in March? The answer is yes. Uh, I'm going to be writing my uh, annual MLB trade value columns. You'll see those coming down the pike, my annual over-under column. All of that stuff will be appearing at an outlet near you, uh, I promise. And uh, I hope that you enjoy all that. March preview season is some of my fa favorite content of the year, that and basically the World Series. That's it. And, uh, yes, I've been crunching the numbers on all the over-under bets and, oh, this lousy team that's not quite as lousy as they think and, and, and whatnot. So, uh, that column will appear before your eyes pretty soon if you like to wager gummy bears on sporting events. Uh, you are certainly welcome to do so and to read that column. It went really, really well last year with the over-under, so we'll see if we can do that again. And you know what else goes really, really well? It's another sponsor of the podcast. How about our old friends at SeatGeek? Hey, SeatGeek, what's going on? Listen. Buying tickets can be a pain in the ass, complicated and confusing, but there's no better way to buy than SeatGeek. They're fantastic. I've used them for anything you could possibly think of. Baseball, hockey games, concerts, 
Highlight, not highlight, but that'd be cool. Highlight sounds fun to go to. Maybe I'll do that one day. They're terrific. I just see Geek app on my phone. I use it. It's fantastic. Saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And just the interface is really cool. It's color-coded and kind of got different size circles. So, oh, that one is bright green. It's in this corner. Okay, I should totally go sit in the left field bleachers or behind the play or first base side or what have you. They're really, really cool and really easy to use. And uh, I swear by it. I would use SeatGeek if they did not sponsor the podcast. So there's that. And how about this? Listeners of the Jonah Carey podcast can get $20 off of their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Jonah today, and you'll get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. Again, download the SeatGeek app, promo code Jonah, $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast as well. And here we go with the latest edition of the Jonah Carey Podcast. It's with Doug Glanville. Enjoy. Doug Glanville, we're recording. Yes, Excelsior. Uh, I am not all that tech savvy, and this happens frequently, but I'm so delighted to see you. Uh, it's been a while. How are you? Doing well, Jonah. Doing very well. So how about yourself? Things are great. Uh, I am psyched that spring training has started. Shohei Otani's batting. Like Kyle Schwarber weighs about a buck fifty. What happened? Baseball's fun now. I'm I'm excited about all that good stuff. Yeah, man. Um, no, baseball is back. It's hard to hard to believe. I know February, and we're already into it. So um, we discussed this before, but uh, I've had you on the podcast in the past, and that was sort of a hey, talk to me about the star backup second baseman for the Minnesota Twins. We don't do that anymore. What we do is we go <laughs> deep on the person. I want to get to the person, and uh, you and I had a chance to work together at ESPN for a little while, and I found you to be a fascinating person, and not your typical ex-jock at all, in, in any way. Not that ex-jocks are bad, but it was just a different kind of perspective. So I, I guess with the, to start with, and I would ask you this, whether you were typical or not, I'm always interested in the path for people who become professional athletes. Because, you know, we all grow up and we play whatever sport we play. We're like, oh, yeah, I'm totally going to play MLB. I'm totally gonna, I thought I was going to be in the NBA. I was super tall. I was like... 6'4", 14, or whatever, and then I discovered, you know what? That doesn't really make a difference. You're not going to play in the NBA. That has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> at what right. point At what point did you figure out, a Little League or whatever, you're like, oh, you know what? Like, I might actually be really, really good. Like, maybe I have a shot at that. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was early on because my I have an older brother, and uh-huh. he's seven and a half years older, eight years older. Yeah. And he loved he loved baseball. Now, my dad was from Trinidad, and he, he brought the cricket culture to uh, – to his family mm-hmm. and my brother took on baseball early on. So he, he had me out there in any kind of weather, you know, hitting off the tee, hitting wiffle ball and, you know, fairly quickly in little league, I kind of sense, Hmm, you know, this, this is fun. And maybe it's fun because I'm doing well. I wasn't really sure. It just was, uh, I used a wood bat in little league early on, even though everybody was using aluminum. My brother's like, no, use the wood bat, you wow. know, get used to the wood. Yeah. Wow. So my brother actually, 
somewhere in some attic somewhere, he has a sort of a list of steps that he wanted me to take to get to the major leagues. Cool. So it, it, it involves stickball, wiffle ball, involves stratomatic baseball. It involves all these stages. So he was very organized and kept all the stats, by the way, to this day. And um, so I think, you know, with under his sort of teaching, I you know started to excel. And one big moment was I go up to the majors of Little League, which yeah. was like 9 to 12 or eight, 10 to 12. And I'm 9. And I, the, the, we faced the, the, uh, imposing figure, uh, Mike Wilkins, who looked like he was 6'13". <laughs> and he was like, you know, he looked like Syndergaard, had the blonde hair and all. Oh, yeah. And, and, uh, and he was 12 or 11 or 12 and I had a home run off him. Oh, over wow. the fence. Yeah. And it was like, and I was so almost confused. I was like, wow, what happened? <laughs> you know? But people were just stunned because just to hit a home run off of Wilkins and ironically, I think about eight years later, I faced him in high school as a sophomore and hit another home run off him. And <laughs> so he's like, I can't get you out even eight years <laughs> apart. So, um, so we had, we had a good time, but, um, so I, that was a big moment because I kind of toppled the giant and I, I, from that real day, I had the confidence to go with, you know, whatever ability I had and the work I put in with my brother and it, and, and, and that, that crystallized the possibility at a young age. Doug, I have a surprise for you. Sitting here at my dining room table is actually Mike Wilkins. No, that's not true. But that would be great <laughs> if it was true. Um, so that's cool to get in that kind of mastery at an early age. You know, from a human being standpoint, you are a larger than average human being. But you're, you were no, by, by no means huge by major league standards. When you were in Little League and when you were coming up in high school and all that, were you a late bloomer? Were you average size compared to competition? How did that go? Because obviously, you know, you mentioned Wilkins. As far as I know, Mike Wilkins did not become a 10-year All-Star. Yeah, I mean, he was presumably was... big for his age. So what was it for you? Were you big or not? <laughs> well, there was there was definitely moments. Uh, yeah. You know, there's, there's milestones that you're playing at a level and you're playing beyond your age. Right. right? I had sort of – and I had a lot of moments like that. My brother particularly pushed me to the next level. Mm. So I didn't just stop in Little League. Uh, I, was, I was a freshman on the varsity team. I'd go up for varsity games. And it hit a home run off of you know an upperclassman in in, in high school. Right? Despite being small, uh, yeah. Put, yeah, and I was a tiny kid. I was yeah. like 112 pounds. Oh wow, okay. Right? You know, I, mean, I wasn't that late, but I was very light. You know, and uh, and then there was like a summer league where my brother and I played. We're supposed to play together on a team, hmm. and now I'm like 15 or so, and he. The the team wasn't promising me a chance to start. They were like, "Well, you got to earn it." Da, da, da. And I understood that, but there was this other team in New Jersey's very provincial, so there were different towns. Yeah. And my brother was playing for Hackensack, where I was born actually, and Paramus was the other town. So I ended up playing for Paramus, and they didn't start me the first four games, but pretty quickly I ended up just doing extremely well. And to the point where, and I got an email from this guy somewhere, I, I stepped in the box batting ninth for Paramus. The, pit, the pitcher literally stepped off the mound and started laughing. He was like, cause I was, you know, I was just like the stick figure at that age. And, and they were, they were joking like, Oh, you know, who's this little kid? And I hit one like halfway up the trees down, <laughs> down the left field line. And, and I remember he wrote me like many years later to say like how shocking that was. So, so we had, you know, I had these moments and, and even up in college, I went to Penn. So we were the underdog and I got a chance to play in Cape Cod, this prestigious pro prospect award 
with all these top, you know, programs, Arizona State and, and UCLA and all these, um, you know, Pac-10 schools and so on. So that was, that was critical to my real vision of the possibility of professional baseball was that I was playing in, in leagues often many years uh, above my age and, you know, having success. And, um, and it just kept coming. So soon I started realizing, well, you know, now I really have professional possibilities, especially after the Cape. I got to ask you, we'll get back to the Cape in a minute because I'm fast. I've never been to Cape Cod League game. I'd love to go. But you mentioned playing stickball. And I, <laughs> I just watched for the first time. I must have been, I must be the latest in life to get to this movie, but I just watched A Bronx Tale. So, uh, Chas Palmateri, Robert De Niro, fantastic movie. Uh, my girlfriend Amy, it's one of her favorite movies of all time. We were sitting there and watching the stickball scene. And this is so far back in the past. You know, this is 50s and stuff like that. The fact that people are playing stickball, you're basically my age and you were playing stickball. I, I, I'm obsessed with this. Tell me a little bit more about how many kids could you get in the neighborhood? How often did that happen? Because, like, I just assumed stickball was a relic from a bygone past. I didn't know that people – I mean, granted, this is the 70s. But even still, uh, I didn't think that people were still doing that back then. That's really cool. How did that go for you? No, it was stickball. Well, there's two things that were big with my brother and I: stickball and wiffle ball. Much more wiffle, wiffle ball. ball. Yeah. And uh, so we had a two car garage, and the 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 brick part uh, sort of partition between the two cars where we drew the strike zone, siding on the edges. That was sort of the black of the strike zone. And we had all kinds of rules, like hit the ball if it ricochets off the wire, you can catch it. You have to catch every ground ball cleanly. To the left of the, you know, of the light post is foul. Nice. And if you hit it into the grass, it was a double, and the sidewalk was a triple, and the, you know, and there was an upper deck area for our neighbors. So we had to use a wiffle ball because we lived in a cul-de-sac, and the house was like right across the street. Yeah, you would crush the windows otherwise. Right. So of course there. So the one day we decided to use a tennis ball because it was kind of getting boring of just hitting the ball like just over the grass. Right. And uh, I hit a ball. through their bathroom window. And this is the town of Teaneck, New Jersey, which had like slave tunnels in it. It was so old. Oh my so, God. And I used to cat sit for them. So, so I knew the house. So I hit the ball. I went right through the window. And I guess the, the wife was like in the bathroom and that like glass like fell. Oh, it was crazy. So we uh, ended that whole stickball thing at, in front of our home. But where stickball would live is all the local, uh, we'd go visit the local, uh, you know, elementary schools or guys that had these brick facades, and we draw you know, chalk in the, in the strike zone. And I, I, to this day, nobody has ever beaten. My, I haven't beaten my brother at stickball. He was like unbeatable. <laughs> but um, you know, but you know, we had some good rivalries. But yeah, we it was literally a stick. It was it was a broomstick, like you unscrew from like a push broom, and you wrap tape around it. You take tape, and it would be black tape, and you kind of spiral it around, and that was your grip. And it was just this long broomstick, and you'd hit a tennis ball with it. And that was, the, and you had all kinds of rules about home runs and fences, and, and we'd imitate all of our favorite players. So I learned how to bat like Mike Schmidt and Gary Maddox, and nice. and it was it was one way I learned all the teams outside of Stratomatic. We would buy these, you know, they had these plastic helmets you could get at the store, and they'd be the teams like Montreal Expos, whatever. And I'd wear the hat, and then I'd become these players, Andre Dawson. So I knew all these batting stances. I knew players from all kinds of teams, like Cleveland, India, whoever. And uh, that was our, our sort of fantasy world that we created that instilled the passion for the game. It was bigger than just being good at it. It became just a real love affair with uh, the history, the players, the uniforms, the rules. And, um, 
and you know, and we we kept it to life uh, all through my childhood, uh, right right until I became really a professional athlete. So I'm so excited, of course, that you're a Stratomatic Kendrick Spirit. Uh, it is a game that I played a lot as a kid. I got away from it at around 15. I was like, oh, maybe girls exist too. Okay, let me put this aside for a little bit. But then came back to it actually as an adult where I started playing in leagues that were – we would play out all 162 games in a full season. So it was like a 24-team league with current major leaguers. And so you'd be like, well, I need to get – late career Paul Canerco because he's not that good anymore, but he smokes lefties and I need to build a platoon with the Brandon Moss equivalent. It's not the same generation who only hits right-handers. And I was really, I got into it and it was really hardcore. So I kind of had two phases with it. Uh, tell me about your entry into it. Obviously it was your brother that got you into it and, and be an advocate for this thing because I love Stratomatic. And I try to explain to people, yeah, they're like, oh, they play fantasy baseball. No, 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 no. Fantasy baseball is cool, but Stratomatic is a whole yeah. other level. Yeah, well, I mean, Stratomatic was the sort of lifeline of understanding the game. Yeah. I mean, that was really, uh, and you remember, you know, my brother got me into Stratomatic when I was like six or seven or oh, somewhere wow. in there. Yeah. So I was making lineups and I started to understand like how you make a lineup and, you know, who to pinch hit for and when to bring in, excuse me, when to bring in relievers and all these different sort of components of managing a team and being mm-hmm. even a GM. We had and, um, and it was certainly a way I learned all the players from all the teams because we were always ordered all the sets with the extra players. So I knew, you know, Minnesota Twins and, you know, Len Sakata. Yes. I mean, just, you know, players I would never know based on the way TV, the way TV was presented then. You didn't have all these national games. You had like, the, you know, the game of the week and mm-hmm. that, that was kind of your only exposure. And the late games and being in Jersey, you would, you know, if, if your favorite team was out west, you didn't even get scores right until so uh stratomatic was sort of a way in to um understanding all these really strategic concepts and and just how to uh, you know the sort of excitement of being the bad and all these things that came joke the other day about how stratomatic should go to like sherwin williams or any of these painting and declare like stratomatic yellow yes those, those uh those old envelopes that they Yes. They would come in this crazy padded folders, the, the padded envelopes that were like this unique, crazy beige, mustard colored yellow, right? So, um, that's how important it was as a kid. And, um, so I got in really early on by Phillies teams and I won a championship pretty early and I played with a bunch of high schoolers and my brother and his, his friends. So, uh, and this was every year, every year. And then eventually I brought in neighborhood kids and, and they would play and they'd be part of it. And we taught people and it just sort of spread. And it was a great way to sort of socialize. You'd go and have drafts and you'd go over and have lunch and and just got to know the players and, and shared that love of the game. And, and I played Stratomatic hockey, football, basketball too. But but really it was about baseball was, was, was that first love. And and the fun part about it is later in my life, I, because once I got to the big leagues, I still paid attention because that was really my mark of arrival. It was great to be in the big leagues. Of course, but it was really the the real mark was like having my own Stratomatic card and the set coming out and really being curious about what my ratings would be and and eventually I became a two in center field and I, you know was saying, and I met I ended up meeting Hal Richmond the, the founder and and his daughter went to Penn so it was like this cool connection that I, I still held firm I'm like 
how are you going to give me a two? I had all these, <laughs> you know, I was ma- making my arguments. So, but for the most part, I stayed a two most of my career, unless a few years I had a couple of ones in there, but that was a big deal to me. I really cared about it. Cause that was, that was like the game of my childhood and to be in the set, it's like being in a video game right today, uh, was really a mark of arrival. There's a new way to get the latest scores, news, and highlights for baseball and all your favorite sports, CBS Sports HQ. It's a brand new 24-7 streaming channel covering the biggest games, best plays, and crucial insights from around sports. You can stream it free anytime on the CBS Sports app for Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, your phone, and other connected devices. And guess what? I'll be on it very frequently. Or you can also watch it online at CBSSportsHQ.com. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I think about Stratomatic being a big part of my life and, yeah. and how it, it really did mark a rival. I mean, it was like a, making my major league debut at Wrigley Field, of course, is incredible, but it was something special to connect the dots between my professional success and really like, you know, a childhood passion around that, that same sport. You know, it was a very direct line to being a kid in Teaneck, New Jersey and being excited about getting a Stratomatic set. And, uh, and I knew, I remember Lenny Dykstra, you know, quoting his, uh, Stratomatic exploits when he hit that game winning home run in the yes. ACS playoffs against the Astros, right? And, and then I played for the Phillies in spring training of 98 and Dykstra was still there hanging on and, and I had a couple of sets ordered. We went over the cards and everything. So, you know, it was, it was cool. And, and, um, you know, that last bastion of the pre-digital era, you know, it's still, carried a lot of weight for me and, and they've done a great job of modernizing the game and still retaining the, the traction. So I, I got to speak at their 50th anniversary. Cool. And I've stayed in touch with them and uh, always, uh, you know, putting something out there on Twitter about them and everything. So, but it was a big part of uh, learning the tactical st- strategic side of the game and really falling in love with that part of it also. Two things about Stratomatic, uh, and we'll move on to the next. Number one is uh, the company's been good to me, too. They actually sent me a card. It was a personalized card, and I think it was his 1983 season, Tim Raines, as you would expect, my favorite player, but it had my name on the top. It said Jonah Carey, yeah. LF2, Arm Zero, and all that stuff, so that was great. But my favorite thing, and I think you'll appreciate this because you grew up a Phillies fan, by far my favorite and weirdest card ever was Al Holland. Which I think might have also been 1983. I remember the 1983 set very well. And Al Holland was a beast then. He was really, really good. This is like when John Denny was really good. Schmidt was still good. That was a good team. And, uh, Al Holland, if I'm not, if I'm remembering this correctly, was better against righties than he was against lefties. He had a reverse split. He was a left-hander. Against righties, you couldn't do anything against him. And even against lefties, he was very good, but he had one weakness. And it was, I think it was like if you roll a six or a seven. So it's a common roll. So it would come up quite a bit. And it was the only hit on his card against the lefty, against lefties, and it was a triple. So if you rolled like a one seven oh, yeah. against Al Holland, you give up a triple. So Al Holland, devastating, and then suddenly give up like three triples in a row. You'd be like, "What's going on, Al Holland? You're ruining my bullpen." <laughs> so I remember this very, very well. I enjoyed Al Holland very much. Yeah. Um, so oh well, those those cards, yeah, they stay with you. Those those special cards stay with you. They really do. It's For like, sure. Uh, you know, Fred, you know, it's really incredible. I remember like Ellis Valentine with all the whole yes. in the one column and yeah, they all stick out. Yep. 
Ellis was a beast uh, and a great man to this day. So I want to ask you about that first game at breaking into the big leagues. And I, every time I have an ex-player on or a current player, I always ask about the first game, the first at-bat. Before we get into walking into the stadium, talk, take me through getting the call, finding out, yeah, kid, you're coming up to the big leagues. Yeah, well, I mean, you can imagine. I, well, I was in AAA playing for the Des Moines Cubs. Yep. And uh, I was having a good I was having a good year. Uh, the manager and I did not see eye to eye on anything. Uh, I was always convinced he had, you know, he had it out for me and, you know, was, it was warfare in, in the year before in AAA. Who was the manager? But this year I was a little more confident. I, uh, this guy, his name was Ron Clark and, okay. um, he was, he was tough. He was, he was tough on me in particular. Okay. And, um, so with Clarkie there, the first year was kind of a disaster. It was, it was a strike year. So he missed part of the season. Oh, yeah. It was a mess. And, but I was able to go to winter ball in Puerto Rico and that gave me the real professional confidence and boost that I could really do this. I'm at triple A and I'm playing really well in winter ball against great players, Roberto Alomar and all that. Wow. And I won the MVP award from, from Puerto Rico, came back all star, a whole thing and, um, did well in triple A. So, you know, I do, I did get the call and, and I, I'd love to tell you a poetic story, but the three of us got called up. It was me. Mike Hubbard, the catcher, mm-hmm. and uh, Terry Shumpert, who was a longtime Terry utility Shumpert. guy. Terry Shumpert, yeah. And Shump, yeah. Uh-huh. So my manager, who, you know, once again, wasn't a big fan of mine, said to Shumpert, you know, hey, congratulations. You've been up there before. You know what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, do your thing. I went to Mike Hubbard and said, hey, Mike, you know, you've earned it. You're one of the, you know, best catchers in the league. You're, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're very complimentary. And then he got to me and said, so if you make the same mistakes up there as you do down here, you'll be right back down. Here. Oh my God! Uh, that was my that, <laughs> yeah, that was that was my send off to me. <laughs> yeah, so we it wasn't a good situation, but I was like, whatever, I'm I'm going to the big league. Yeah, and uh, so I you know so I got you know got the call at home and you know travel and it was tough because I was packing and ta- calling people all night, so it was like two three in the morning before I finally went to sleep, and of course I couldn't really sleep. And then the flight was like six, you know, seven in the morning. So, um, so I didn't sleep a whole lot and I was starting the next day at Wrigley Field and, you know, seeing my name in the lineup with like, you know, Sosa, Grace, Sandberg, oh Dunstan, God. you know, it was just like, yeah, my stratomatic deck of just, just blew up all over me. <laughs> so it was really, it, it was surreal, man. And it was really cold. It was June 9th and it was freezing in Chicago. It was like 40 degrees. Mm. Um, so I didn't get any hits. It was against your Expos. Oh wow! And Kirk Reuter. Kirk uh, Reuter. Pronounce his name exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kirk Reuter. Kirk Reuter. He um, he was tough, and and it was a guy I just didn't hit well against generally. But um, but at first ball I hit to the warning track, and there's almost it almost hit it out. Laid down a nice bunt and um, had my first game. But I didn't get my first hit, which was fittingly in Veteran Stadium, the team I love. So it was kind of nice to get my first hit in RBI against the Phillies. So it kind of worked out, but, but, uh, man, it was, you know, walking on water, man. It was, I mean, the whole, whole first year was like that. Like every stadium you're looking like that's, that's Fernando Valenzuela. That's, you know, you're playing against these guys yeah, yeah. Who, who you loved or admired or wanted to beat as, as a fan and, uh, facing D- Dwight Gooden. And, you know, it was just, it was crazy, man. It was absolutely mind blowing. And, uh, but I loved it. I had great appreciation for it right down to the stadiums we played in where we're truly cathedrals of the game, you know? Uh, and you mentioned that just coming up after the strike here, so we're talking mid nineties, basically your the meat of your career is right in the PED era, which is an interesting one too, because you 
you're not that guy. You were built for speed and defense and all that stuff. Um, I guess the way that I try to approach this is to ask you, how do you think you fit in in that era? Because that was really a time when everybody was, not just statistically, but everybody was getting in the weight room, you know, hours a day and, and working on this and trying to just be jacked. Just like, let me have arms to the moon. Let me do this. Let me do that. And not to say you didn't train. Of course you did. But that wasn't your build. I'm going to guess that wasn't necessarily your mentality. Did you feel out of place in that way? Did you sort of look and say, what's going on here? How did you, uh, what was your mindset, I guess, from that perspective? Well, I mean, it it, um, it probably was in phases because you're suspicious. You know, well before this stuff broke, you were suspicious or you heard rumors about sure. players or, you know, so you're like, I don't know. Um, but then, you know, you kind of like, you realize you have a job to do. I mean, I can't spend my energy worrying about, you know, what McGuire's doing or what this guy's doing. Sure. I, you know, it's like I, I have, I have a role that is somewhat independent of power, right? Enough that I can still be valuable and you know play defense, steal bases, and and I, I did all the same things. I worked out and I had trainers and I did Pilates and all that. It wasn't nice. that I didn't see see the value of it, um, but you know that was you know I didn't I elected not to go down the PED route, but I definitely trained hard and. Most spring trainings, most spring trainings, I would move, I'd move to Florida or Arizona early to, um, you know, to make sure that I got a, a jump on things. So I was often, you know, living in, you know, Clearwater, Florida for the Phillies by January, you know, early January. Sure. Um, so, you know, it was, it was just part of being prepared and I definitely recognized the game had shifted in terms of the emphasis on the home run. And we later understood exactly, you know, how that came about. So pretty quickly, there was a time where I started to feel I had some, you know, existential issue here because right. the home, home runs became king. <clears throat> Excuse me, home runs became king, and they also were very specific to my position at a certain point. Right? It wasn't enough to play defense and be quick and get down bunts and yeah. make contact anymore. It was more important to, you know, that even center fielders had to hit home runs or, or be productive in, in a power game. And that really, you know, that wasn't my game, you know, so much. I mean, I, I had to figure out how I can survive. So slowly the, um, the production of a center fielder became a little bit more geared towards, well, play defense. Yeah. Um, and we really only need defense after the seventh or eighth inning. Right. right. So I became quickly became thrust into more of a fourth outfielder. And, um, you know, Marlon Bird kind of, you know, took over. I left for Texas, you know, started, but it got hurt. And then I came back to Philly, accepting that I'd be kind of a role player. And, um, and that's what I was, you know, at that point in my career. And I was, you know, I was older. I was like 33. So it wasn't totally unfounded, but, um, you know, it was a very quick shift in this power emphasis. So, but I, you know, I did my job and where I fit in in one way is, is I was the union rep for my team. So that mm. was very tough because I, I had to look into the policies and I had to really figure out, you know, how we should change our culture around what was definitely directly impacting my career prospects uh, as a player that was getting older and wasn't a power hitter. Um, so that was that was difficult to to navigate, especially with all the uncertainty. What's legal? What's not legal? Is this, you know, is it cheating? Is it over the counter? Yeah. We were kind of at a loss, and and so I and you know what happened after that with all the survey testing and leaked information, and eventually a drug policy that now has quite a bit of teeth in it. 
Uh, that's a good opportunity to flash forward a little bit and talk about where we're at in 2018 because we just went through this offseason and there are all kinds of theories about what happened this offseason. There were good players out there. It took a long time for them to sign. We're still sitting there. We're about to, this will air on just as we're coming up on March. There are still very good players out there. Mike Mustakas, as of now, is not signed. Greg Holland is not signed. There are good players. And J.D. Martinez just signed. Eric Hosmer just signed. We've just had these things come down the pike. Lots of theories. Lots and lots of theories. Uh, you and I both grew up in an era, sure. followed an era where there was collusion, where Reigns and Dawson and Jack Morris and all these other great players were flat out colluded against. That's been mm-hmm. kind of the, the biggest, strongest, most inflammatory theory that's been put out there. Other people have said, well, all the front offices recognize analytics. They're not going to overpay anymore. Some people said there's no more Maverick owners. Mike Illich, may he rest in peace, passed away. He's not paying 214 for, for Prince Fielder anymore. Things have kind of regulated. But this is a sport that has had the strongest union of all the sports, and it always seems like the players are in good shape. And now we're years away from the next CBA. Players are really worried about their paychecks, whether they're superstars, maybe not superstars, but kind of the next tier down all the way to the bottom. Where are we at with all this stuff? If you were a union rep right now, would you be hopping mad and saying, this is some, I could swear on my pocket, this is some bullshit? Or would you say, nah, it's the natural progression of the market and it'll regulate? Well, I mean, look, I, I think there's a couple of things that are different about today's culture yeah. around collective bargaining, for example. Um, now, I came up in the Don Fear era, which did not have a strong emphasis, if any, on communications, right? right. Because he 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 made the calculation that, look, we're not going to out media the where, where teams are actually owned by media entities, right? Right. Um, so we have to have internal clear communication. I have to be on the ground. I have to trust my loyal lieutenants on the ground to be able to um, pass on information. And because real time wasn't as real, like Twitter and, you know, all texting, and it, there's there was a little bit more bandwidth for you to go door to door and yeah. make sure you're on the same page. That is not the reality today. And information is so quick. Uh, misinformation is even quicker. And you have to figure out how do you get ahead of this. So you have to have a robust communication strategy on making sure you reach players. So that would be complication number one of just getting people the actual facts, right? And you just mentioned there's all kinds of theory. Well, what's the truth, right? What's actually the real reason or what is the thing that's motivating enough to have players stand for certain policies and shifts in policy? And that would be a huge challenge of just getting that information. Now, I think um, it would be very good to rethink how strategies play in, in the communications arena. Uh, that is, to me, going to be critical as to the union staying strong and getting ahead of information, right? So right now, I would also say you don't really know until you get all the data and information, right? You don't know. Eventually, these guys are going to sign, and they're going to sign for something. Mm-hmm. And then we may look back and say, well, it was just a delay, but they all signed, and it's not comfortable to sign like March 12th, but they still got, you know, 110 million for whoever, right? So we don't really know. And, and usually the most telling graphs are when you just map, you know, revenue versus sort of payroll, right? Mm-hmm. And you kind of go, Oh, wow. There, all of a sudden it's like, you know, it used to be 60%, 54%. Now it's 30, whatever. Uh, and two to be determined. So that, and those drags on payroll could just be the threshold and the taxation, right? Which is a drag. It could be all the things you mentioned about spending and analytics are going to always do that. 
because you're trying to get blood out of a stone. Yeah. And eventually you get really good. Eventually you get really good at it. And you start to see like, well, this guy is this guy. And you start to see the value of age and all that starts to play together where you will get more efficient. And then maybe something blows it out of the water because someone really needs a reliever. And so, um, yeah, the owners have always had that battle with the, within their own egos and own challenges of, of just being competitors, right? Of, well, there's this guy that can help us, Jake Arrieta, for example. Oh, yeah. And, well, I, I need to, you know, I need to sign this guy and I got to outbid the next person because I, and I, or I have to add more years on it that I'm maybe not comfortable with. Ultimately, the, the desire to win and maybe the specific needs that are in competition, you know, tend to, to win out. It's just, um, you know, how open is that marketplace? And, and usually you find out sooner rather than later. But, um, but I think you need the benefit of time. That's what I kind of learned as being deeply involved in the union as a player. Sometimes you just need time to flush it out, and players don't always feel like they have time with their short careers. Well, to your point about revenue streams, a few years ago, players were supposedly the split was like 58-42, and we don't have the exact number now, but it shifted the other way. And every team is going to get a payment of $50 million because MLB Advanced Media got sold. So each team, again, this is the Yankees or the Tampa Bay Rays, they're all getting a check basically for $50 million. And they're like, well, we're going to pay down debt service on our stadium, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. That's real money that's not being spent. So I kind of wonder about that. Uh, but I want to ask you, let's get into specifics here, about the system as it is. You mentioned age. And the theory about Bill James posited years ago that the peak age for a baseball player was 27. That's already relatively young. Then you had the PED era, and you had guys having really good tails. They would have really good seasons of 36, 37. Maybe it skewed the number a little bit more toward late 20s. And the most recent studies have suggested that this is like 24, 25 when guys peak. Multiple reasons. PEDs, the use has gone way down. Also, guys are coming up and they're fully formed. The Lindors, the Trouts, the Correas, they're awesome right away. So you don't have this apprenticeship where you got to wait five years before the guy becomes good. So all that's put together. And in the meantime, you've got a system in which you've got six years of team control followed by free agency. And even leading up to that, first you're making the league minimum, then you're still suppressed in the arbitration period. You're like 25, and that's where you should be making your big money. You're still suppressed, and it's only later that you can make your big money. If you are a commissioner, if you're the grand poobah of Major League Baseball and you could blow it up, because I kind of wonder how this is going to go, do you fundamentally change the system that Marvin Miller advocated for, which is this six-year system and league minimum and ARB and all that stuff because it doesn't work if guys hit free agency at 29 and teams will look at it and say, 29, buddy, you're past your prime. Forget you. Yeah, I mean, well, and once again, that that comes from a lot of different perspectives. I mean, obviously, yeah. Marvin Miller did transformational work in unions uh, with respect to bringing in arbitration and, um, and and sort of like building on that incrementally with with just a string of victories, basically. There were no rights. Um, Everybody how, was chattel. Yeah, however, I mean, you're chattel. Like there was nothing. Kurt Flood said we need to do something. Took years. Marvin Miller, Andy Messersmith, these guys get it done, but there was nothing. So to go from nothing to this, very good. It's just that now we're forty odd years in the future. So how do we fix it? Go ahead. Yeah, and well, and, and like you said, it's it's a, the question of value, right? And and assessing value. And I know as a player, I I knew I had to wait a long time to finally get to free agency. Yeah. And when I did, it was it was slow to a frozen tundra at that point. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was a really difficult time and, yeah. and, um, and I was older and all that. So, um, you know, cause I came up, I was 25 when I came up, but I was a part-time guy and then 26 and, 
you know, I came maybe I turned 26 and, you know, it was, it was late. I was on the late side of especially being a first round draft pick out of college. Right? Yeah. So, um, so there's no doubt this talent pool is going to put some pressure on, um, on how the market will shift. But, you know, what happens with a Chris Bryant? What happens? Well, there's still always the option people, you know, prepay, right? They, yeah. they make decisions on, all right, well, I'm going to pay Lindor and pay all these guys in advance and sort of buy out those years. And, and maybe skew it towards where I, where I think there is value. But it's never lined up perfectly that your best year is the year you're making the most money necessarily because you're kind of paid on what you've already done. Yeah. Right? You're paid on sort of a, uh, you know, okay, well, you had a great year that year. Now you're worth, you know, JD Martinez is worth X because he had 45 home runs and less than 500 at bats or whatever, right? So you have, that's his value. Now, his age is going to play into what they think he will do towards the end, but that's the challenge of it because you're, you're, you're trying to get this sort of past performance and bring it to sort of the future. And the really what matters in terms of your results on the field is the present, right? <laughs> so, um, and that's, that's, I don't know how you exactly, you know, fix that because the young guys, let's say there's a, a shift back the other way where young guys are kind of struggling and they're sort of figuring it out because they added some change in the rules and all of a sudden, you know, they're not necessarily producing right away. They're, they're slower to develop and you know, it becomes the game of the stolen base, whatever, something can shift culturally, which can skew where that, um, those six years of success will be because we define, we as in the consumer, the owners, they define what is success, right? They're metrics. And just like Kevin Kiermeyer is no longer undervalued because yeah. of his defensive metrics. That's a, that's a shift in, in, that's a shift in emphasis. There's no reason why that can't happen again. And by my understanding, baseball kind of has these shifts every five years, a whole new generation of points of emphasis of players that I would say, you know, you have to kind of have a balanced approach to it because you need to account for the fact that you will have these kind of cultural shifts, which also affect the, the, the metrics of the game. Mm. I want to ask you about your uh, post-career moves. And, you know, when you're a ball player and have some acumen, there's a lot of ways that you can go, and you ended up going into sports media. Uh, what did you see as attractive about that, about getting in there and doing analysis? Was this just sort of, I'm tapping into my inner stratomatic, and I get a chance to talk to a TV audience about it? Was <laughs> this, this is the right fit? There's obviously camaraderie involved when you do this kind of thing in a way that, doesn't quite mimic a clubhouse, but it's not the same as pushing paper at IBM or whatever. What attracted you to going into that, uh, to that realm? Well, you know, I, I kind of, I, I think about the writing side as, yeah, you know, maybe it's cliche, but I, I mean, it was kind of, a, it was almost like a calling in a way. Right. Mm. Uh, and why I say that is we just spoke about it. The PED um, revolution was what inspired me to write oh, wow. because I was perfectly situated. You know, I was perfectly situated, right? I, um, I played for the Texas Rangers, which got in, caught in the crosshairs of a lot of this with yeah. A-Rod and so on, Palmero. I, um, I was a union rep working on the policy and I had a lot to say that I felt was missing in the dialogue around this discussion about steroids in baseball, right? It was a lot of, um, name naming. It was a lot of name calling and, um, and I felt I could add this per- perspective as a player through the lens of players' insecurity and fungibility in this game, right? I just thought that was valuable. So, you know, so I ended up sitting down one day and just writing this sort of 
rambling essay initially on players being afraid. They're really genuinely afraid of their, their career and how short it is mm. and the competition and how the competition isn't just the guy in the other dugout. It's the guy in your dugout, right? Um, cause you're all fighting for the center field job or the shortstop or the last spot on the roster and all that. So that really got me out of my chair to really write something. And my dad had passed away when I got my 1000th hit of my career in 2002, wow. the last game of the season. Mm. And, um, he was a poet and I wrote and I really felt the first time a genuine connection to him really being with me in, in writing. Wow. So I, um, I, I know, and I took off, and, it, and one article led to another, and I was writing for the Times and had a book deal, and and then ESPN called eventually and said, hey, why don't you audition? And and uh, you know, it went well. And the reason I was told that I got that job because I wasn't, I didn't know anything about TV when I auditioned yeah. for ESPN, but I had a, um, they they made us do a game, basically call a game as a color analyst with Carl Ravitch was the play-by-play guy. Yeah. And I had never, never really done this, right? So, but they, it was a game that had already been played and they, it was four innings of a Red Sox Yankees game. And I studied all the notes that they sent and I was ready to do it. And I, I didn't cheat. I didn't like look at what happened in the game. I just did it, right? Okay. And I, so I go in this room with Carl Ravage and we go, we call the game and Paul Bird was pitching, I remember. So I had a lot to say about how I knew how he called signs himself and not the catcher and I had all these secrets, right? That's great. So it was, so it was, so it went pretty well. But the one thing I did as I added in the t- conversation with Carl, even in between innings, was this information that the guy, you know, the producer later said, well, where did you get this information from? Because the on that same day of the game, I want to say Ichiro had a hitting streak and the Cardinals clinched. It was like September. Yeah. And I figured that was relevant to a, a, to a telecast to bring those up. Sure. And he said, well, where did you get that? I said, well, you gave me the date of the game and you gave me the the information. So I went online and I looked on the internet and AP wire about what else happened in baseball that yeah. day since we would just talk about something other than the Red Sox and the Yankees. And he told me, he said, you know, nobody had ever done that in the 20 years he's done interviews around. Wow. So, so I had set aside just unique content. That was my goal. And I, another funny thing happened, Conan O'Brien did a skit where the, the thing fell on his head and he had to like go to the hospital. He had like a concussion or something, right? Okay. <laughs> right. So it was like random stuff like that. Right. So, um, so it was cool. And, and so I, it, and it was a way to take my writing. I first had thought, take my writing and turn it into multi-platform communication. That's was really important to me and, uh, how I can learn how to express these ideas in other platforms. So, and it, you know, and that's what it was. And I was there for seven years and it, it came to an end in not a way that I would have chosen, but it still, uh, I gained a lot of benefit. And, and now with all the social justice, uh, commentary and all these challenges about equity and yep. advocacy and fairness and is sport, is sport a proxy for our better selves around being, you know, a meritocracy, these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Then, um, I kind of found this sort of new space and that's, that's what I'm sort of looking into and but i really love calling the games and i i, I still would uh, welcome doing that i'm just not sure how that's going to happen so I'm, I'm sort of uh throwing all my cards on the table right now um i want to get back to social justice discussion i want to get to what happened to you in your at your home in west hartford with the uh, authorities and all that stuff but uh, i want to get back one for one second to the idea of ex-players and calling games and how it all works because 
the thing about stuff like that about Paul Byrd is fantastic. And I got a chance. I was so lucky. You know, I got a chance to sit in on that baseball tonight green room for a few years. And I can remember the, one of the first days I sat down, I was sitting next to Mark Mulder. And Mark Mulder, I don't even know, it was some pitcher facing. It was a le- might have been Sabathia. It was a lefty facing a right-handed hitter. And he goes, back foot slider coming up right here. And it was. It was a back foot slider. I'm just like, how do you do that? Like, I, you know, I played one year of Little League. I suck. <laughs> I played Stratomatic. I understand stats. I read Bill James at eight years old. I get it. But I never played at a high level. I never even played in high school. And, you know, he kind of walked me through a little bit how it works. And Mulder, was, Mulder has, is good on TV and all that stuff. But there are some people that you feel like, it's almost like they're holding back. Not, not that crew. I thought that Mulder and, and when Cora or, or uh, any of those guys would get on, they would do a really good job. But sometimes there'd be this, what happens in the green room is not what's said on the air, whether it's at baseball time. I can't speak to baseball tonight, but some other studio show or TV or whatever, where the level of candor, the level of expertise doesn't quite filter out. And I don't know if that's because of nerves on the part of the talent, if it's because the producers are like, we need to talk about how Mike Trout is handsome. I don't know what the problem is. You did not do that. You had you would be an analyst. Sometimes they send you onto the outfield and you do all this like cool, like different kind of commentary. Why do you think that might be that sometimes we get stuff that's not that good? Is it just that not everybody is great at that job? Is it the producers are giving are putting notes in your ear that are very broad to reach a broad audience? Because I love the nitty-gritty. I want to know that it's going to be a back-foot slider, and we don't seem to get that on television very much. Yeah, well, Jonah, I mean, that um, there's a lot of answers to that. Okay. I mean, we, could, we, could do a, we could do a podcast on that. <laughs> well, let's take a crack at it. Yeah. yeah, let's take a crack at it. Okay, so, well, all right, let's start with one point. One point is... There is still unspoken etiquette about players talking about players, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and about the criticism side of it, right? Like, uh, you know, Freddie Gonzalez came with us for baseball tonight in studio for a while, and he was very, you know, you could tell he was very concerned about it. I mean, he's a manager who's looking for possibly another managerial mm-hmm. job or whatever, and I understand that. So he was, you know, very concerned about, like, you know, saying something overly critical or negative. Um, he was trying to, you know, be optimistic and, and there's certainly ways to be optimistic and then educate. Right. And that, but that's a craft. And, and the one thing I learned very quickly about this and it was told to me many times is baseball, being an analyst, it is not a baseball job. It is a communications job. Mm. It is not, you know, and the best example was Jerry Madelon, who was a mentor in the talent office at ESPN, pulled me aside one day and had two hands behind his back. <laughs> And he said, "Hey, you want? Did you ever do this to you?" No, but I, okay. I, I know I can picture that stance, and I think Mike McQuaid might have done that to me one time. Like people, I know what you're talking about. Right. So he had two hands on his back, and he said, "Do you want a starburst?" Right. <laughs> and, right. And he and he and he pulls both hands out, and he opens his hands, and one of them is completely crushed and stepped on, <laughs> and just destroyed and leaking out of the package, and the other is completely pristine. Uh-huh. So he's like, well, which one do you want? I said, well, obviously that one. He's like, well, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And it's like, he's like, the moral of the story is it's in the packaging, in mm. the presentation. You can have the same exact content, but if you don't know how to present it, then you're giving the person the, the stepped on starburst, right? So, you know, you became aware of like how you present. And I took voice lessons, vocal yeah, lessons, yeah, yeah. all kinds of stuff, right? So, um, it was a communications job, and I wanted to be really good at that. So that's another aspect of it, developing the craft. Because, And the other thing is just industry priority, right? Things shift. 
And if, if like, you know, millennials or whatever category of people that are the dominant culture of what is um, the audience you're trying to reach, that's going to shape things too. And, and maybe you don't want to know about the backflip side or you want to know about, you know, Derek Jeter's, you know, uh, dating a life with Mariah Carey or whatever, right? <laughs> you want to know, you want to know the, I don't know, but I'm, I, I you, there's an audience factor yeah. that may play into it that may well be a driver that is constantly shifting. So, um, and, and you know, so you get on air and, and there's, you know, and, and yeah, there could be nerves to some degree, at least early on, but eventually, you know, you get settled. And I mean, I, I was, you know, terrible when I first started. I had no TV experience. Mm-hmm. And it, when I first started, we had to look right into the camera. And that was weird for me. Yeah. And I, I did a lot better when we started to talk to each other. And I did a lot better once I got some more training and got reps. But, um, but you know, saying something profound in 30 seconds or 10 seconds or five seconds or with someone in your ear or someone across, you know, no, it's not easy. I mean, my, yeah. I mentioned one part of the audition. The other part, was when I did a live baseball tonight, which was a, like a mock tonight. Yeah. And I, I had no idea what I was doing. There was cameras running around. There was moving cameras. There was people pointing. There was red lights. There was people sliding papers over the desk. There was people in your ear. You were talking to the guy next to you and you're looking at video. It was like, it was like craziness. So, um, it's not, it's not easy. And I've seen a lot of people come and go or visit and realize pretty quickly it's, it's, it, there's a, a skill to it that you have to develop. So I think that that's a lot of, a lot of reasons, but, um, you know, there, you know, guys, there's different levels of comfort on who you can talk about and to what depth. And uh, there's no doubt people are mindful of that for sure. I want to create a network where we just, we're talking to the stratomatic people. It's all back foot slider talk. It's all inside baseball. Nobody's dating anybody. I don't care. I don't care. Derek Jeter's handsome. Congratulations to you. That's wonderful. I don't care. <laughs> I, I have to tell a brief story, by the way, uh, just because you brought up baseball tonight. I don't remember if I've said this on the podcast or not, but uh, my first baseball tonight was, you know, oftentimes, like, there's the one thirty show, the 1 a.m. show. It's like me, you, and Adnan Verk, or like me, Cora, and Adnan, or me and... Uh, Hakeem Dermish and Eddie Perez. That kind of stuff I was very comfortable with. It was just like, mm-hmm. these were my people and I got it. And it was like, everybody was smart. Everybody was cool. It was very laid back late at night. You know, you could loosen your, we didn't wear ties. You could loosen up a little bit. But the first show that I did was not that show. I did a primetime show. First one I ever did, by the way, ever. And I did not audition. They didn't have me do voice lessons or anything. They just said, this guy's a writer. He's done like hits here and there on TV. We're going to put him on. I went on with Ravage. Shilling and Crock in primetime. <laughs> That's my first show ever, ever, okay? And we go on, and it's like April 29th, May 3rd, something like that, early in the season. And some guy's got a billion home runs or whatever, and Ravage goes, wow, this is really exciting. Shilly goes, yeah, you know, his pedigree's really good. He's a first-round draft pick. He comes from Iowa, da-da-da-da. Crock goes, man, you look at his swing mechanics. This guy's going to be superstar, da-da-da-da. And they and, they, and Ravi says, "What do you think?" And I go, "Small sample size." <laughs> and it's a small sample size, Carl. There's nothing going on. There's nothing to discuss. This is not going to last. So okay, comes back later in the show. Pitcher, oh, he's got 12 strikeouts tonight. Wow, that's great. Wow, this guy was shilling. Well, if you look over here, he's got this really excellent split figure fastball. Crux like, man, I wouldn't want to face that guy. Jonah, what do you think, <laughs> Carl? This guy is in the league four years now. This is his fifth year. He's never been a strikeout pitcher. This is a small sample size. Why are we talking about this? And they look at me like I'm completely crazy. And then I get off the air, and I don't remember who was producing the show. It might have been Greg Colley. I don't remember who it was. And they go, 
you know that you were exactly right, right? I go, yes, of course I was right. And they say, you have to say it in a better way than that. You can't be dismissive and in two seconds say it's a small sample size. You need to elaborate a little bit more. And by the way, as the season went on, both of those guys sucked. Both that hitter and that pitcher were not good at all. <laughs> I was completely vindicated. It's just that I didn't know how to be on television, and I don't know that Schilling and Kruk liked me very much. Rafi and I developed a report. It was fine. But anyway, it was just very, like, I was doing this completely wrong. My point was right, but I didn't know how to package it. My starburst, starburst was not only crushed, it was actually, it had like hair growing out of it. And it was, it was bad. It was not a good situation at all. So yeah, but yeah, I did I love mean, doing that show. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, I, well, look, I, I always say like, I mean, one thing I probably would have said to you for fun is like, well, every sample size starts small, right? So, it, you know, sure. and, and those guys are paid to project, right? Like, yeah. Based on like their brilliant eyes of sure. knowing talent and, 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 and that, that's to me is fun. It's, it's a fun discussion. I mean, I remember discussing, debating the Cy Young the year it was like the, the Trent, the Holy Trinity, right? It was like Kershaw, Arietta, and Granky or something. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Right. Right. And I was a Granky, I was in Granky's uh, corner. I was on the Granky bandwagon and, um, and, there, and so we got into FIP and all these things mm -hmm. and, and yeah, it was, it was good. You know, it was like challenging. And I, and I, um, I said, well, I'm not worried about Granky getting a contract for five years. I'm just looking at what he's doing right now. You know, it's sort of like that kind of discussion. Right. So, um, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. And it's a communication job and that delivery matters. And then, and then there's just elements of it of how, how popular you are. Right. I mean, yeah. um, and I, I just did a class in my class on this about followers and likes and, retweets and mm -hmm. you know instagram followers and you have all these elements that determine that the weight of what john crock saying or kurt schilling saying or someone else versus what you know uh, you know hakeem dermish is or doug glanville you know yeah. they all have their relative weights too and that that sometimes plays a role into it yeah no i just tons of respect i just learned so much just showing crock Mulder, you core perez it was just like wow this is I, I'm in fantasy camp for knowledge. It was a really cool experience for sure. Um, you talk about social justice stuff. You wrote a piece for The Atlantic uh, in 2014. The subject was, I was racially profiled in my own driveway. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. An, inter an interesting one to be sure. And uh, we're talking about West Hartford. You know, this is a, see, a reasonably integrated kind of place and, and what have you. And uh, we're not where we need to be. So, Tell us a little bit about what went down then and kind of the lessons that you learned. I thought it was a very interesting piece and it was eye-opening. I was like, wait, Doug? I know Doug. What, what are you talking? How could this be? How could this have happened? It was just, it, it blew my mind that we're sitting here in 2014 and 2018 for that matter and we're not at all where we need to be. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it was, um, I call it a social justice moment, I suppose, yeah. when I talked to my class on it. But, uh, but you know, keep in mind, I, I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. Yeah. And it's one of its claim to fame was in 1964, I believe. It was one of the first to voluntarily, uh, first, one of the first school districts to voluntarily integrate using busing, right? Yeah. So they had a, um, a program, a sixth grade program that they integrated and, uh, you know, ended up kind of being part of the culture of Teaneck. So I was very comfortable and familiar with working across historically divisive lines. I work with a lot of different groups of people. I grew up with them there and it wasn't just in the classroom. It was on my little league team and my church and wherever. Right. So we had all these, um, engagement. It was truly inclusive and, um, and you know, nothing wasn't perfect, but it certainly was a pioneering town. So I've always worked on these issues and in a way, very positively, right. Police 
they were they were my coaches and ultimately my teammates when I grew up. So I had a very positive relationship with law enforcement uh, from my from my childhood. So uh, that was the lens by which I came to this experience. So one day, uh, after many school days of just kids being out at school and my minivans, you know, stuck in the driveway, basically, I'm out shoveling after four days of snow. And it's like mid afternoon. And I was right outside. I live in Hartford, Connecticut. And I'm one block away from the border that separates these two towns. And Hartford and West Hartford are very different, different, right? Yes. Like a world apart, you know, urban America. Hartford is like 85% people of color and Mm -hmm. so on, right? So different planet and, you know, poverty and all that. So, um, so I live in Hartford and I see a cruiser across the street pull up that says West Hartford. And, you know, if you're a Northeasterner, in particular, you understand the provincial provincial nature of the Northeast. Oh, yes. Like every city and town, and they have their own school and, and school department and their own, you know, police department. And, you know, everything is like, it's not very regionalized, right? Like yeah. the South. So, um, <clears throat> so I'm um, out of my driveway, and I see West Hartford, and that was like strange. Like, what is a West Hartford police officer doing in Hartford? Mm-hmm. So I thought he was like visiting the neighbor, because he sat in his car for a minute, and Anyway, long story short, he crosses the street and he's wearing one of those ski masks with with the face exposed, not not just the eyes. And the, right. And he cro- he crosses the street, and I'm shoveling, and I'm at the end of my driveway, and he looks at me, and I look at him, and I stand tall, and I'm like kind of like expecting something like, "Do you know where the park is?" or something like that. Sure. And he and he just says, "So, are you trying to make extra money shoveling people's driveway around here?" Um, or, you know, make a few extra bucks shoveling people's driveway around here. I'm like, what? So obviously I'm totally off balance now because he didn't introduce himself. Right. And he never said why he was looking and why he was even asking me. It was just surreal. And now I'm really getting uncomfortable because I'm like, okay, now I have a police officer kind of in my driveway and he's not happy. He's, you know, clearly prejudging and not in a good space. It was just not a good situation. And, yeah. Um, so I made small talk about school and my dog and tried to just like disarm the situation as best I could. And he seemed somewhat satisfied, but he wasn't like apologetic. He's like, all right, well, happy shoveling, whatever, and yeah. took off. Right. So that was it. And, and so I was like, what just happened? Just three minutes of my life went by and my whole confidence and home ownership and being welcome and all these things just was completely out the window mm. and and let alone dovetailing into what i understood about stop and frisk policies in new york city and sure. all the profiling and all that it was a problem so it was a long process but ultimately my wife who's an attorney by trade we engaged some neighbors some of which had some influence like state reps and we formulated a strategy. I, I elected to send out olive branches. I met with West Hartford. Yep. I, uh, I did two months of research and then ultimately wrote this article for the Atlantic, which caused quite a stir. Yep. Uh, we were, we had only been living there a year and we were, you know, we are criticized by a really top, uh, opinion writer who we're now friends with, but was really pretty, um, negative on yep. me speaking out and saying I was overreacting basically. And, uh, but then what, you know, I had my vindication because ultimately it led to a lot of great dialogue. Um, I stayed strong on their cause and we ultimately drafted a bill that became a law right out of schoolhouse rock. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, it, and it challenged jurisdiction and it really, 
um, created a, a, a what I've said a very positive conversation on schools all over in both towns and throughout the mm. region, and I'd say it throughout the state. So, um, but it took a lot of work. It was grassroots, and I did my research, and I and I, I was I was very fortunate to have the time and the resources to be able to devote to it, and that was the the, the true privilege of being able to, you know, you know, be a, at ESPN and be a professional athlete and have access, right? Because I learned along the way the process that a lot of people don't have access to, to be able to engage civically. They they don't have time, they don't have money, they're working, all these these reasons, or people just don't pay attention because they're not considered relevant. Um, those issues, I had all that access and I used it to bring shed light on issues that were I thought a lot bigger than just a, a rude police officer or whatever, but to get into bias, to get on assumptions, to get into racism, to get into all these questions around policing, uh, around uh, communities. And all these things, and it, it sort of accomplished that. And we ended up having a law passed that, you know, uh, anecdotally is called the Glanville Law in Connecticut, whatever. But it's uh, a law about crossing town lines to enforce municipal ordinances, and really, really outlining that um, more specifically. Because they were, he was looking for someone from his town, and it was sort of a wild goose chase, and they didn't really have um, what I what seemed to be the burden required to be all up in another town and questioning sure. citizens and all these other things, right? And especially the way in which I was questioned, right? So, um, so you know, but at the same time, I was sensitive to the fact that I want to make it all about this officer. I tried to elevate the conversation to something larger. And then when I, the the person that criticized me on NPR, the NPR guy who wrote the article, by by the year end, he he kind of retracted his his opinion about it and realized that um, there was another way to look at it. And I think in between that was all the you know Ferguson. I can't breathe and all these things happened where people started to really recognize that engagement with police, especially in, in the communities of color, uh, have a long history of, of, of real tensions, of, of misunderstandings, of bias, of a lot of, a lot of problems, especially when you read the full Ferguson report. So, um, so that was it. And that's what started my, um, my efforts into a lot of the social justice work. And, um, uh, in a real dynamic way of working actually on policy and change, not just sort of symbolically addressing it or just talking about it. I really wanted to act on it. And, uh, and that was success number one. And I had my second success. I can certainly get into that at LAX. Um, if you want to hear that one, but, um, but that was just involving, I went to LAX working for ESPN at midnight, I arrived at LAX with my colleague who was, who was a, a Caucasian gentleman and yeah. there was me, African American. And um, we went to get a cab, and the cab driver told me to go take the bus. It's nineteen dollars. Oh Repeatedly told me to take the bus. So that led to uh, a city council called the city council, and they shifted their whole policy, um, which was already pretty strong, and um, created zero tolerance about discrimination uh, uh, for race and identity. And, yeah. And um, you know how ridiculous is that? You're just getting a cab after getting your luggage, and the guy. You're dead tired. You flew bus. across country. You know. Right. So, so, you know, yeah. So do we have a lot of work to do? Absolutely. And, um, and my, my, my focus though still is through collaborative solutions, through elevating humanity above any, all else, but recognizing that, you know, we, we are not treated the same in, in our country. And we, uh, if we truly aspire to that, uh, or, you know, some level of equity, uh, yes, there's been progress from certain eras and certain times that we can build on. And yes, there's wonderful people that, are, are supportive of that, but there's, there's just a lot of work to do. And, and our country right now is very polarized and really a lot of these issues are coming to the forefront. 
So I'm, I'm hopeful that I can serve as a resource of, of the positive of what's possible. Well, and it's worth speaking out about, you know, you have levels of violence. You have Charlottesville. You have these flashpoint moments, but it's worth speaking out about the quiet, insidious stuff. The police officer did not take you into custody. There was no physical altercation. But that is not going to happen to me because I am Caucasian. It's just not going to happen. And I have to imagine that that kind of thing, or even the threat of that kind of thing, wears on you. That even if you're not in some sort of, again, flashpoint incident, if you just are chipped away at, chipped away at, in your driveway, at the airport, whatever, and you can't live a life of ease. We want to live a life of ease. We want to be able to pay our bills. We want to be able to support our family. And we want to not be worried that something is going to go wrong for something that we didn't do. That, to me, seems every bit as worth fighting for as preventing violence, preventing, you know, systemic discrimination, that these kinds of little things don't seem to be little at all. So the NPR uh, person criticizing might have missed that point that, yes, it wasn't the kind of thing where some violence occurred or anything like that, but that NPR commentator might not have to live his life that way, whereas you, for no reason that you did anything at all, apparently do have to live your life that way, and that's just completely unacceptable and goes against what we're trying to do. Right, and, and you know, we call them like microaggressions or different yeah. things. But yeah, it's, yeah, there's, um, there's no doubt that... Um, that was a very difficult situation because, you know, I have kids and I'm trying to explain to the yeah. kids what happened. And like you said, I'm, you know, I just wanted to shovel my driveway. And, and obviously I was legitimately doing that. Right. And, and the fit, the description part about this life is, is part of the challenge, right? That I could be mistaken for someone else because there's, there's sort of not the sophistication necessarily around, around race at times. Like, okay, well, you're, you know, you're 30 and you're black and you're, that's about the same as 47. And, you know, right. you know, you just have these, right. And that could put you in some very uh, fraught situations, right. So, um, so there's a lot of, um, you know, like you said, systematic questions, but there's also just, you said, those granular level exchanges that you're always conscious of because I've had plenty of them, you know, it's not based on like me just pulling stuff out of the sky. Like, you know, from, you know, when I, when I got drafted, and I tried to buy, uh, you know, test drive some cars because, you know, I had people tell me they lost the keys. They didn't want to, you know, I had people tell me I had all kind of nightmare experience just trying to test drive a car, yeah. a car, you know. So, I mean, you know, these are what people may take for granted. So, um, you know, and, and when I look at sport, I hope that sport can be our best model, as I mentioned earlier, this meritocracy at its best, where it can set the example of people from all walks of life coming into a locker room one day in spring training and trying to forge a championship season together. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that is the best of what we can be as, as people, as humans trying to, um, to be a part of one team, the, the sort of the human team, the human race and in our country as Americans. Right. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to focus on that as, as a positive and, um, but, but not recognizing there's a lot, a lot to do. Just a couple more here. I want to ask you about the class that you've been teaching uh, I noticed I hopped onto your Twitter. Uh, you and uh, your co-lecturer professor were talking about a great piece that I loved, uh, former co- another former colleague of mine, Jay Kang, wrote for Grantland about Ichiro and identity. Really, really interesting stuff. And, and forging those kinds of connections when it comes to sports and identity, uh, teaching, communication, what have you. It seems like it's a good nexus for you. So how's that been for you? How did you get that gig in the first place? And how's that been for you doing that kind of work? Yeah, well, for starters, I mean, I love it. I love it. And, um, well, 
it started because of, you know, I got laid off at ESPN in April. Yeah. And just totally disoriented. So I'm trying to figure out what's next. And, you know, I moved my family here five years ago. So it was, it was tough. And, uh, so I started just to write down some of my favorite things that I've worked on over the years. And I, I started to see this list of topics around social justice mm-hmm. or identity, culture, sport. And, um, I just jotted down some ideas and there was about 30 on this list. And I started to realize, well, wait a minute, maybe I have something that I could impart or be an intermediary between students or athletes or student athletes or professional athletes mm-hmm. and, and information as a resource about how do you advocate for things you're passionate about, your mm-hmm. causes? How, how are you effective? How do you learn how state and local government work to really change something? Like when I went through the snow shoveling, I ended up getting appointed on the police council by the governor. Hmm. And I found out that this is the council that's responsible for creating the curriculum for every officer in the state. Jeez. How would, so how would you know that if you didn't really dig deeper yeah. and get access to information, right? So I could save athletes or people a lot of time by providing information on the effective uh, sort of conduits to change. So it started there. And more and more I looked at it, I said, this is a class. This is a class. And it could be for, you know, major league baseball players or whoever, but it's a class. And I started working on it and I got advice and I drove all around Connecticut and all these places asking people, tweaking it, changing it. And eventually I pitched it at my alma mater at Penn, did a guest lecture on it. And they were like, boom, let's do this. And they assigned me this incredible TA, John Villanova, who is an expert in race and music, particularly he's a, he's a grad student and and teaches the course at Temple and all that. And we together tag team with my PR rep, Carolyn Bork, and we got after it. And really every week it's, it's a blast. And these students are incredible. We brought in, uh, you know, we've had through either some video conferencing or in person, we've had Aaron Tellum. We've had, uh, Nicholas, uh, Thompson from Wired, who's at the New Yorker. We've had, um, Jessica Mendoza. Adam Jones, uh, David Pace, who was at Reebok International. Uh, we're bringing in some more heavy hitters, uh, in the coming days. So, uh, it is a, it's a cool class and I use everything under the sun. I use video, podcast, PowerPoints, discussion groups, whatever to throw all kind of curveballs. So, um, and our, the, it, it, the course is in three parts. The first part or first third is History of, of sort of sports athletes and activism, mm-hmm. uh, through all kinds of lenses. Uh, there's a current aspect of it, 2017, 2018. So I cover all kinds of walks of life, disability, race, gender, religion, whatever, um, to show that we are all in the same space when we're looking for equity and equality, right? It doesn't matter. This is, there's a common language there that we're yep. seeking. And then I go through the legal construct, right? Hmm. So part of that first part is the legal, First Amendment, 14th Amendment, um, you know, NCAA, all these flavors. And, and then I get into the tools of communication. Then ultimately the last two sections are getting deeper into those tools and then finally getting into what happens strategically through communication when you click send on a campaign or a statement or something on uh, that you're, you're sort of active, you know, you're act- being an activist on. Mm-hmm. Uh, social justice or a campaign. So, so in the end, the students get out of it a real sensitivity to all these different types of people that have fought for these rights. Uh, they get a historical context. They understand to make legal arguments and they know how to use the tools, uh, to maximize their, their reach and their impact 
on some of these social justice causes. So, um, and I'd like to think it's bipartisan. I bring in, you know, try to bring in conservative thought, liberal, whatever. I try not to get into all these boxes. Yep. I know sometimes social justice is like a curse word in politics, unfortunately, <laughs> but, but in the reality, it's, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing when we see and recognize that we all, uh, you know, all have been activated for various causes. And, and that's what I try to see the common ground of all of it. So it's, it's really cool. And, um, I'm hoping to, you know, expand it and, you know, see what happens. I mean, I don't know what my next media job will be or, or if there is one, but, um, you know, I'd love to connect the dots with this and expand on it. And if all goes well, who knows? Maybe I have a role in um, consulting with players or yep. students. Mm-hmm. And then maybe there's an institute or a, 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 a center around these concepts, which I think would be very valuable. I don't think there's quite anything like it uh, that really brings in all these different perspectives of sport and uh, whether professional, uh, collegiate, or even uh, amateur level, and I, I don't know. I think there's a lot there, so uh, very excited about it. That's awesome. I love it, and I have to think that you know Malcolm Jenkins or Colin Kaepernick or whatever, when they start being advocates, they don't necessarily have a roadmap. They don't necessarily have a coach or whatever. They're just like, well, if this sucks. I'm going to say something about it. So it feels like if there's somebody with expertise to be okay, well, let's think about the legal ramifications and what is the best spin and what have you, uh, that that can go a long way. That you take the passion and the belief in a cause, and you channel it in a positive way. And it has been very positive, by the way, in the sports world, but it feels like there's always going to be more work to do, especially if people want to affect change. They're 24 years old. They're trying to change the world. Uh, that's not an easy thing to do at all. Well, exactly. There, it, And that's that's all I want to use, my real experience. You know, I, I, yeah. I've had the fortune of having a long career, being in media and communications, uh, actually watching a law be made in a state from soup to nuts, working on watching policy shift at a whole airport that is one of the busiest airports yeah. in the world. Um, you know, these are real uh, experiences that uh, can add a lot of value to people who are interested in these causes. And, um, and you know, sitting on the police council now, sitting on the Civil Rights Commission for the state, uh, these are, you know, that sort of civic side of the equation, which is not sexy, right? You're sitting in a smoke-filled room, <laughs> you know, with, do- you know, donuts and, whatever you need to do, just trying to make it through discussing civil rights with, you know, a bunch of policymakers, for example. And, and, and what's been great about the police council actually has been, you know, these, you know, these chiefs of police, I mean, we have a great rapport and I, I have a great respect for this group. They're, they're, they're all walks of life. We have, um, you know, victims advocates and FBI agents and chiefs who really care about these issues. So, um, you know, you just need to, you know, get on that granular level. So yeah, I do, um, I feel like there's a lot of a lot of need there, and there's young people who are just trying to get some sense of direction on it. And if I can be of assistance in that area, you know, I, I welcome it. And it's a great way to combine a lot of passions of mine in a way that's constructive. I just want to point out that donuts are extremely sexy, and how dare you? Don't 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 be don't be getting after donuts. I don't like that at all. Um, oh, I, I love donuts. Of course. I just uh, although lactose intolerance has kind of bit me lately, so mm. I stick to uh, French toast with uh, almond milk. Strong, made with almond milk. Yeah, strong, very um, powerful. <laughs> One last question, which I do at the end of every podcast, is I always ask the guests for a life tip, a nugget of wisdom, something that keeps them going. I uh, you know meet you at the corner store in a bar and. I say I'm Jonah and I enjoy donuts or I feel passionately about this thing. There's something that's elementally me. I guess it would be, what are you about? You're about Tim Raines, whatever it is. So if I was asking you that question, it could be something super serious. Obviously, you stand for a lot of 
causes for which you're passionate. It could be something that's silly, whatever, gets you through the day. It could be a little superstition, whatever. I've had somebody say, the way you tie your shoes will change your life. Famously, on every, almost every podcast, I always, when I'm informing the guests of this, I say, one guy, Trey Kirby, a TV guy, said that once you get to the airport, your vacation starts, so go ahead and have 75 Cinnabons, because who cares? Your vacation has started. <laughs> so it could be anything that you want. It is the quintessential Doug thing that defines Doug. What do you got? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. I mean, you know, it's quintessential uh, um, me, you know, I, I don't, without getting all deep, yeah. I'd say it. Everyone in this world, for, well, I should say it this way. For everyone in this world, there is a Hall & Oates song for you. Nice! <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, I, I love that very much. And I feel like my friend Benjamin Hawkman, who's a sports writer in St. Louis, would actually say the exact same thing. This might be the first time that something has been duplicated in that way. That's, that's beautiful. That's fantastic. Have you had a chance to meet them? Have you met those guys? Of course, of course. Nice. And, uh, John, yeah, John Oates. I'll send you the podcast I did with John Oates. And oh my I, god! I, oh, on well, on YouTube, there's a one-hour interview of me a sit-down with John Oates at the Strand Bookstore in New York. Oh wow! Uh, I, I I I emptied the notebook. I did spoken word, poetry, <laughs> interviews, trivia, video. I had a PowerPoint. I mean, I I I had I was prepared for like a seven-hour chronicle of his life and uh so so no we're cool i met them uh, uh, because i won a bet with my sixth grade teacher that if i made it to the major leagues i would get to meet hall and oats and when i made it to so when i made it to the big leagues i picked up the phone and 1998 their tour at radio city i was backstage and i got to meet him and ever since then i've actually been very cool with john oats and gone to dinner with him and you know been with his family and everything he's a good man so i love it uh doug this has been a pleasure i'm so glad i got to catch up with you uh, as i said i really enjoyed our time uh together at espn i'm glad that uh you're doing stuff that you're passionate about and i wish you nothing but the best thanks john the same same and hopefully we'll uh you know keep crossing paths i hope so